Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. Cloudy skies. Welcome to this Monday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Now, coming up in just a moment, a conversation with Dr. Grant Rivera, superintendent of Marietta City Schools, talking about the five-phase plan to hopefully return all students back to the classroom. Phase one starts September 8th there's been a slight degree of magic loss when they don't have their peers and they're not sitting face to face with a teacher who can smile at them and hug them and high five them and what have you. So is it good? Yes, I'm pleased. Is it what any parent would want for their child? No, I don't think so. That's coming up next. But first, speaking of back to school, today is the first day Atlanta public school students went back virtually. This year, more than 50,000 APS students are, yes, starting the school online. Now, students in Hall, Merriweather, and Rockdale counties, they're also returning. Hall and Merriweather County students have the option of virtual or in-classroom learning. Rockdale County, well, 100% virtual. And a note of disclosure, as always, WAB's broadcast license is held by the Atlanta Board of Education. Meanwhile, raise your hand if you had difficulty accessing the online conference portal we all know and love as Zoom. From students to teachers to those Monday morning meetings, it's not clear how many could not log into the video conferencing application due to a global outage. At this time, via a statement on their website, the company said, quote, we have received reports of users being unable to visit the Zoom website and unable to start and join Zoom meetings and webinars. We are currently investigating and we will provide updates as we have them. Close quote. Sorry, folks. Now, on to the latest data as it relates to COVID-19 right here in Georgia. 5,132 Georgians have died due to COVID-19 since March. That's according to the latest numbers from the Georgia Department of Public Health. Georgia surpassed that 5,000 deaths over the weekend. Now, more than 176,000 people have died due to COVID-19 nationwide. That's according to John Hopkins University. And at this time, Georgia's Department of Public Health reports there are 253,949 cases in the state. And the number of hospitalizations has reached 23,369 of those. 4,265 RICU admissions. This, of course, is always according to the Georgia Department of Public Health. And finally, today is the first day of the Republican National Convention. The four-day event is themed, quote, honoring the great American story. President Donald Trump is expected to make an appearance each night. And tonight, Georgia Democrat and State Representative Vernon Jones is expected to give a speech. So far, Jones is the only Georgia connection among the speakers. The District 91 representative is also the only Democrat to endorse President Trump. Now, you can hear full coverage of the convention starting tonight through Thursday right here on WABE at 9 p.m. This is Closer Look. 
Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. As our Back to School edition continues, next, it's a plan called the Flexible Approach to Teaching and Learning. It's a five-part phase plan for the Marietta City Schools to fully integrate all students for the upcoming school year. And as you've been hearing on WABE, each school district, each school community, large, medium, or small, in terms of students, well, they all have a different approach, but they have the same problems. How to keep students, educators, and staff safe, how to prevent the transmission of the coronavirus, and simply the best way to educate all students. Well, joining me now to talk about their plan from the Marietta City School, Superintendent Dr. Grant Rivera. Thank you for taking the time, as always. I really appreciate it. It's great to be with you, Rose. So here we are. It is now back to school for so many students. Let me ask you this, Superintendent. Uh, what keeps you up at night? You referenced it in the opening. It's, it's really the safety of students and our staff. I, we are making, and it's been difficult as a superintendent. I know probably every superintendent across the country feels this. We're making life and death decisions. And I don't mean to be overly dramatic, but what the good news is that we have the authority to make the decision. The challenging and the news that keeps me up at night, as you asked, is the fact that ultimately there isn't a lot of consistency. There isn't always a lot of guidance. And what is given to us is so generic in general that really the onus is on us. And I, I, I carry that responsibility as both superintendent, but also as a father of a child in this district. It's what keeps me up at night. Is it easier for you, and maybe easier is not the right word, but does it help because you are a parent who has to make those same decisions for your own kids? Does that help you in, in, in your your approach to making decisions for so many other students and somebody else's kids? Well, I'll tell you two ways that my perspective might be a little different, not only as a parent, but also in a school district with 9,000 kids, 12 school campuses, and roughly 1,400 staff. We're smaller than a lot of other districts in the metro Atlanta area. And I think I I have two things that keep me grounded. One is oftentimes I go home and my wife, who will get an email from me as superintendent to say, what is this? And we start talking through it. A lot of times I'm not just answering questions to constituents. I'm having to answer to my wife. Um, And she's, she's one of the toughest critics as superintendent. But also in Marietta, I I know many of the 1,400 staff members by name, and I know their families. I'm not making decisions in a vacuum. I make decisions knowing which teacher is four months pregnant and which teacher has their their older parent living with them. I mean, those are the things that I take to heart because I can't just stay insulated in my office and pretend that I don't know the faces and places and dynamics. It's, It's something that weighs on me as both a member of this community, but also a superintendent. You think about the size of the Marietta City Schools as opposed to New York City, which is the largest public school system in the nation. But there's a difference there. Each district, each community of schools is going to be different based on the size. You just made a reference saying you take you make sure you want to know what educators are dealing with. But to your knowledge, has any educator, support staff or student tested positive for COVID-19? Yes. We have had since March, we have had, I would say, an isolated number of students um, as well as number of staff test positive. Um, Yeah, without question, it's it's hit our community in similar ways as it's rippled through every other community in this country. And for clarity, there's already online instruction taking place right now. Correct, Rose. So we started the school year August 4th. We made a commitment to start on our schedule 
time, our scheduled date. And all of our kids, we started 100% virtual pre-K, four-year-olds, all the way through high school. Correct. Now, before we get to the phases, I want our listeners to understand what factors did you all consider to make that decision? Yeah, Rose, it was extremely difficult. And I, I can tell you, if I, if I really quickly walk you and your listeners through, back in May, we were planning for a full opening with options for kids to stay virtual. And by full opening, we were going to offer five days a week, five days a week in person or full-time virtual. And what happened is once, once we got through July 4th and we saw positive tests spike, there was a day that July 14th, I'll never forget it, I got a phone call from the Department of Public Health and they said, listen, we, we can't test efficiently contact tracing is useless and we have a problem and that was really the point at which we decided schools were not safe enough to go back in um, in any in any form or fashion two days a week five days a week what have you so we pivoted mid-july to a full-time virtual model the day we made that decision we started planning for the day that when testing was good enough and contact tracing was functional could we get our kids back in the building because we do believe that our youngest learners especially and our students with disabilities benefit from in-person instruction because oftentimes they have the greatest difficulty accessing virtual learning. So really there's been, and I, I tell our community, I'm sorry for the whiplash. There are times where I feel like we have to make decisions and families are wondering what's next. The reality is that we continue to pivot based on the dynamics, but we also recognize that kids need schools when it can be safe. Let me ask you, Superintendent Rivera, do you feel the schools are safe? Because with Tuesday, September 8th coming up, which is what we're going to get into next, which is phase one, you feel the schools are safe. You feel like y'all have enough measures in place. So I'll tell you what I feel good about. And I'll tell you again, to go back to your original question, when we started, what keeps me up at night? What I feel good about is that Marietta City Schools is able to execute the risk mitigation strategies that are recommended by the CDC and the Department of Public Health. So we will reduce class sizes to five to nine and can guarantee six feet of social distance in a classroom. We'll take every child's temperature. We'll mandate masks. We'll put up desk partitions to separate kids. We've increased HVAC ventilation and filters. I mean, I've, well, there's a laundry list of 15 different things. Mm -hmm. I feel good about what we can control. I'll tell you what I don't feel good about. And that is, this is about community transmission. So if we don't have our community change their behavior there's nothing that we can do in schools to keep it out. So if, if our community, they talk about the three W's, right? Wear a mask, watch your distance, and mm -hmm. wash your hands. If our community honors those three things, we can open safely and keep our kids and staff safe. However, if we pretend that there's a wall high enough to keep COVID out that exists around the school campus, we're going to quickly find out that it's, there isn't one. With this, what you all call this flexible approach to teaching and learning, what are the risk mitigation strategies here? You want to be able to make sure that with each phase that you all are mitigating the transmission risk. Is that correct? It is, Rose. And I think there's a, there, there's a first step that I think is important to understand. And before we even get to the risk mitigation strategies, the reason this is called a flexible approach to teaching and learning we're giving children and families the opportunity, obviously, to make a decision about whether to come in or not. I also believe, though, philosophically, as an educator, as a colleague of these 1,400 people, that if we're offering children the option to come in or not, we should offer that same flexibility to staff. At the end of the day, this is a personal decision. And whether you're a student or a staff member, I believe that in Marietta City Schools, you deserve the respect and the consideration to make that decision. I'm not going to require you as we open phase one with high community transition to, uh, transmission, 
I'm not going to require you to come into a building when the reality is you may be able to do your job, still working the same 12 hours a day, still serving kids, but it doesn't have to be in a classroom. It can be at, at, at home. And we're really trying to show our, both our students, we're trying to extend the same flexibility and, and to our staff that many districts are extending to their students. But with that said, yes, there are a list of risk mitigation strategies, like I mentioned. We are, the reason we're going to a two day a week plan, we will have kids come in on a Monday, Wednesday, or a Tuesday, Thursday, grades pre-K through second grade, as well as our students that are served in one of four different, what we call low incident special education classes. And those students in phase one will come in two days a week. We believe that we can, we know we're committed to keeping class sizes five to nine. Therefore we have the social distancing, as I mentioned earlier, temperature checks of every child before they get on the bus, before they walk into a building, requirement for masks, little things, little things, important things like students not trans, uh, transitioning to the cafeteria, but instead eating lunch in our classroom. We're going to, for example, recess. Kids wanna get outside, we're gonna encourage them to get outside. We put some tents outside each of our elementary schools to give them more opportunities, especially with inclement weather. And we've also created recess materials. We've, we've, we've purchased recess materials for every classroom so the kids have their own set of recess toys and balls and hula hoops, et cetera. And then we will disinfect that at the end of each day. We've got extra custodians walking in the building, um, wiping down handles and, and, and high contact areas. We'll be fogging at night, fogging buses in between bus runs. There's a lot of different risk mitigation strategies we have in place. Every one of them is aligned to what the CDC and the Department of Public Health believe is the safest way possible to open schools. Phase two and phase three, how will you decide that it is necessary to move to those phases? Or for listeners who are saying, well, what if what if we see an increase? What if there's a confirmed case? Will those phases will you just stop and then say, you know what, everybody is online? Yeah, so I think there's a couple things to understand. So first of all, just to give a very brief overview of the phases, as your listeners may not have it in front of them, phase one brings back pre-K two mm-hmm. two days a week, uh, and students with disabilities in elementary school. Phase two then looks at expanding the students uh, students with disabilities who have access two days a week. And then as you move through phase three and phase four, we look to bring kids back five, um, five days a week in elementary. But I'll tell you, Rose, we are extremely cautious. Mm-hmm. In elementary, we can bring kids back and keep them in these little homogeneous cohorts all day long. But when you get to middle and high, kids transition from class to class. And to your point, there is no guarantee that we're going to march through at certain timelines of this phase from phase one to phase two. We told our community it could be two to four weeks. It definitely could be longer. The factors we're looking at, to your point, as we look at the timeline between each phase, one is what's happening with community transmission. Mm-hmm. We specifically at the recommendation of Department of Health look at the 14-day case rate from the date of onset. We need to see that number significantly dropping. Right now, we're in the low 300s. 100 is con- considered the, trans- the, 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 the shift from high spread to lower moderate. So we have to see the numbers go down or we can't move from phase one to phase two to phase three. I think the second thing is we have to have a staffing model. We have to have staff who are able to come in. I can tell you right now, we have high numbers of students who in phase one don't have any intention of coming back. A lot of students in some situations at over half of our elementary schools, a majority of the kids want to stay virtually. So really we're not, this is not a race. When you talk about the health of students and the safety of students and staff, I'm not racing anywhere. 
we're going to take this very slow and deliberate. So not only will we track the transmission rate, we'll also track, are we successfully opening? And again, with the collaboration of the Department of Public Health, if we have to close down a classroom or close down a school, we'll do that. We certainly are taking the risk mitigation strategies to have to avoid that. But I think we'll know as we get three, four, five weeks into phase one, whether or not it's safe enough to start to transition through the rest of the phases. The voice you hear is Dr. Grant Rivera. He is a superintendent of Marietta City Schools. And we're talking about their phase plan to hopefully integrate the students back to five days of in-class instruction. A little bit later in the program, Superintendent Rivera, I'm going to talk with a parent who has some concerns that they have a child with special needs and that it's virtually impossible to get the in-class instruction Not just instruction, but there's a lot of other social and emotional concepts there. Can you understand that? And what have you all been able to do to help those students who have an IEP, students with special needs? So do I understand it? Absolutely. And I'll I'll give you two very personal reasons why. One, I'm a former special education teacher, Mm -hmm. and I would argue still a special education teacher, even my role as superintendent. And then two, I have a brother with severe disabilities, and I can't imagine, and and I have talked with my father many times about this, the toll that virtual learning has taken on, on, on students that would be like my brother, you know, if he had still been in school. Mm -hmm. So I I say to you, yes, we acknowledge, and that's really why Marietta City Schools prioritize students with disabilities getting back into the classroom. And throughout virtual learning, we're also providing support to families uh, virtually. So, I mean, one small example is speech services. Students who have speech services still get those virtually. There are things we can't do, which is all uh, we can't do virtually, which is all the reason why we need to get our kids back in the building, but do it safely and in small groups. We recognize that our students with disabilities are often our most deserving learners who struggle the most in accessing virtual learning. So whether it's the academic content, the social emotional development, um, all of it, there are things we just can't replicate. And I think we have to be sensitive as a community that these children face greater challenges and we don't need to take the same approach that might work with one child for another child who has different needs. And I think that's, that is, that's what's pulled on my heart candidly and been a priority for us as we look to develop this plan in Marietta. I want to shift for a moment and talk about the virtual learning. Now, do all the students to your knowledge have a device that they will need, Chromebook, laptop, what have you? Yeah, so I can answer that two ways. Uh, in Marietta City Schools, we've made a commitment that every single child who needs both a device and a hotspot will be given one. So to date, we've handed out over 4,700 Chromebooks to our roughly 8,800 kids. And we've also handed out over 1,000 hotspots. So we continue to message that and have since March. We had kids who didn't pick them up from spring, but now that we've opened school, they want them. We continue to hand them out. And uh, we prioritize that in our budget, and I think we should prioritize that in learning. To your knowledge, in these first few weeks of school, is, is there some sort of assessment to see if, how much loss of learning might have occurred for some students since you all, since the entire state months ago, had to all go online? I mean, is that something that you all have implemented? Yeah, Rose, that's such a, you've asked such an important question. I, I want to park on it for a moment because I think that what you just asked is at the core of what every family should be asking. Every one of your listeners should be asking themselves, how do I know and how does my child's teacher know virtually whether my child is on track or not? 
give you just some quick numbers just to further put an exclamation point in your question. And that is, there's a there's a research put out by the NWEA, which is a, an organization. They looked at 5 million children. And what they said basically is that if you compare a child going into a grade level this, this in August, compared to a child last year, the child who's been impacted by virtual learning compared to their age and grade appropriate peers from a year ago will be 50% behind in math and 30% behind in reading. Your question is so important. And again, I say it, every parent listening should be asking it. In Marietta, what we're doing, not to get too technical, but every child, um, our, our youngest learners, but every child has access to what we call MAP scores, called measurement of academic progress. We, in fact, my daughter goes in tomorrow for an hour and a half tomorrow and an hour and a half Thursday as a second grader in our district to take the MAP test. Why? We have to have their data and be able to compare them from where they were back in January, which is the last time we gave the MAP, MAP test in Marietta. We have got to be able to look at this data and we've got to hand it to families. We have to hand it to teachers and say, whether we're in person or we're virtual, you leverage every piece of information you have about a child because we can't be generic. It has to be personalized. And I, again, I think your question is so spot on. In Marietta, that's our approach. I think whatever, but the other districts may be doing it differently, but that is a critical question. Here's the thing. It's not good enough for families to simply march along and do what the virtual teacher tells them to do. They have got to stop and ask, how do I know whether my kid developmentally is where they should be mm -hmm. in August based on their age and grade? And that is the most important question you've asked me, Kansas. Wow. Superintendent Rivera, you, you mentioned your kids. Let me ask you this. How has the online experience been for them? You know, it's been, I think it's been good enough, if I'm being honest. Um, mm. My daughter's teacher um, is hustling. My daughter's teacher, and I would argue so many across the district, have done special things to not only make themselves an effective virtual teacher, but also to build relationships with children. I am so proud of what the educators have done um, virtually. I'll also say what happens in a classroom is magic. And there's been a slight degree of magic loss when they don't have their peers and they're not sitting face to face with a teacher who can smile at them and hug them and high five them and what have you. So is it good? Yes, I'm pleased. Is it what any parent would want for their child? No, I don't think so. And I think that's why we continue to push if we push the, the, the envelope of, of innovation and creativity and ingenuity because we know we want to get back to that magic when it's safe to do such. So I'm proud of our educators. I see it as a dad. And I also realize, hey, there's something we're all still missing. And finally, before September 8th, how much sleep do you think you're going to get at night? <laughs> you know, here's what I'll say. I'm hustling. But you know what? I'm not working half as hard as our teachers. You know, I'm, in a super, I'm a superintendent. I, I can make decisions that ripple across this district, but that's very different than the 700, 800 educators, counselors, administrators who are working tirelessly. So I can assure you that I'm going to get more, more sleep than a teacher. And I think that's why every one of your listeners, I, I would leave you with this thought. If there's someone who's left a positive impression on you, like just pop them an email, whatever it may be, because I can tell you this is thankless. It is so tiring and there are a lot of sleepless nights for educators who are on 8, 10, 12 hours a day trying to help kids. They are the heroes in this and they're the ones who deserve both the praise and the sleep. Dr. Grant Rivera, Superintendent, Marietta City Schools, thank you for taking the time. Best of luck this school year. I don't know how you are a second grade math, but uh, 
Thanks, Rose. If I need help, I'll let you know. Well, I'm not the one. <laughs> Thank you so much, Superintendent. I really appreciate it. I appreciate you, Rose. Thank you, as always. And as we continue our coverage of this year's Back to School from Kindergarten to Higher Education, on tomorrow's program, I'll speak with a group of professors and graduate students from campuses throughout the state. They're all members of the United Campus Workers of Georgia. It's a collective of university employees and students. Now, the group is calling on the University System of Georgia to, quote, set policies that allow a safer and more equitable return to campus during the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. Here's a little bit of what you'll hear tomorrow. Do you think that the systems, colleges, and universities should have had in-class instruction at all? Yes or no? No. Professor Fu? Well, you know, I mean, there this there is an argument to be made that we should have opened up, right? The economy depends on it. You know, there and so I, I'm a little bit agnostic on that question. You know, however, I would say that the way that they have rolled this out has been abysmally poor. The plan that they have made has completely shut out workers at, at every level below the, the very top. And uh, the, the components of the plan are themselves, you know, in some ways, extremely misleading. They've, they've intentionally misled, I will repeat that, they have intentionally misled the community about very key aspects of their approach to reopening. Under these conditions, it's, it's, it's insane to reopen under, under, this, under the guidelines they themselves have set. Denisha? At the least, there should have at least been options for remote learning and teaching. Um, that's what I believe. And, you know, most of our campuses shut down around March because of, because of COVID-19. And We've had since March to to try to plan around what this is going to look like, um, but it seems like the USG's plan and the different campuses' plans have so many holes in it. And once again, they're they're wanting to prioritize in-person classes. Um, so I think at the least there should have at least been the option for students, faculty, and the staff who could to be able to work and go to school remotely. Professor Ward? They could have done this safely and they chose not to. Indeed. They could have prioritized testing and contact tracing and they did not. They could have minimized the number of people on campus at any one time by allowing anyone who wanted it to work remotely. They didn't allow people who have high risk loved ones to get out of face-to-face. It's, it's, I don't understand why we couldn't have done these things because we need some face-to-face instruction, but we need it to be safe. And they have not done what's required to make that the case. In a statement to Closer Look, it reads in part, quote, the University System of Georgia remains committed to the health and safety of students, faculty, and staff, and continues to follow COVID-19 guidance from the Georgia Department of Public Health and Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Preparations for fall semester resulted from a comprehensive and detailed planning process that began in April, led by campus presidents of USG's 26 institutions with input from hundreds of campus stakeholders, close quote. You all don't seem to agree with that. That's, I guess it's it's misleading at best. I mean, they, they at UGA, 
they formed nine committees to plan back in April and May. They, and I guess they, they, they were, they, they loved to, to tout their big numbers. Maybe 140 people were on the, on those committees. Virtually everyone was an administrator of some type or a chaired professor or something of that nature to say that they, I, I'm pleased, I guess, that they've adopted this language of stakeholders. They understand that it's an issue now, but they did not include stakeholders. If, if I may say, there, there's, here's one little anecdote that I faced. I saw early on in July, I noticed that in our building where the mathematics department is housed at UGA, it housed, houses multiple academic units. In, near the beginning of July, I realized that there had been no planning, zero planning across academic units for how we were going to navigate. People are gonna navigate stairwells, elevators, things of that nature across academic units. I brought this up to my department head. He said he passed it up to the dean. My department had said that the dean thought it was a good idea. It still never happened. It never happened. Stakeholders completely cut out. We should have been talking amongst ourselves with custodians, with all other departments. How are we going to work this out? Never worked it out face to face at the detail that, that only we could have, could have brought to bear. So transparency is, through your lens, has been lacking through you all's lens, correct? Indeed. They did not consult the union and they did get notice that they needed to fill the dorms from their corporate partners. So stakeholder from our perspective <laughs> is not from below. Yeah. Corporate stakeholder, yeah, that's right. Financial stakeholder, yeah. That was Denisha Pyle, a graduate assistant at Georgia College and State University. Joe Fu, a math professor at the University of Georgia. Rebecca Ward, a biology professor at Georgia Gwinnett College. And Bryant Barnes, a graduate assistant at UGA. Again, they're all members of the United Campus Workers of Georgia. And I'll have a conversation with them tomorrow, right here on Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. As we've mentioned on this program many times, from K through 12 to college campuses, it's a new school year like no other. Our children have been disrupted since March. We had summer learning loss. August 24th is the first day of school. It's not like when they come to you all excited and bright-eyed and then you can see them and assess where they've been. They've been emotionally traumatized. Mm -hmm. They've been instructionally traumatized. We're going to spend the week of the 17th through the 21st doing assessments, and some of that will be virtual as well. It takes a holistic approach, and a lot of the systems did a very good job of delaying beginning virtually to allow the teachers more time to plan, more time for some professional development. It also, I said, it's harder for educators to teach virtually when they're not used to virtually teaching than it is to walk in the classroom. 
and it's also the situation where we are very aware that there are equity gaps throughout our state. These are not new problems, right? Mm -hmm. they, they are manifesting in different ways, but they are not new problems. And so when COVID hit and schools closed, folks were talking about how do we get children access to um, computers? How do we get children access to high-speed internet? Well, the, the problem with thinking about how do we get, right? It means that those problems existed beforehand. These are unprecedented times um, and we're all kind of building the plane as we're flying it. Coming from New York City, which was really the epicenter mm -hmm. of this pandemic, I have to say how absolutely impressed and inspired I've been by our educators nationally. Um, and, and now that I'm here in DeKalb and hearing about how quickly um, and efficiently, effectively, the staff switched to the remote learning and really did their, their very best uh, not having uh, this experience, as well as recognizing how patient and flexible we all have to be while maintaining a sense of urgency uh, for the for the work ahead. And those are some recent conversations on this program with area superintendents, educators, and policy experts, all discussing this year's unconventional back-to-school season. But now we turn to a parent to get his perspective. His name is Todd Hardo, and recently he started a petition calling on Georgia Governor Brian Kemp to resume in-person instruction for students with disabilities. Now, the petition is also gaining the attention of other parents as well. As of this broadcast, I believe the petition has more than 3,000 signatures. And joining me now to talk more about this is Todd Hardo. Mr. Hardo, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for helping bring light to this issue. Let's begin here. Tell me about Wyatt. Wyatt um, is 10 years old, and he happens to have Down syndrome. And he, um, like all the other kids, wants to be in school. He loves school, he loves his friends, um, he loves his teachers, he likes doing the activities like the other kids do. Let me ask you this, how important is it for you all and for Wyatt to have that, that interaction with other students? Well, for Wyatt um, to have that social interaction is very important to us, um, as important as the academic piece. Um, he's very social. He, you know, um, you know, you have to sometimes stop him from giving hugs to people when he shouldn't be, <laughs> especially these days. Yeah. And, you know, having that interaction helps him learn as well because he can model off his peers. Mm -hmm. Now, the first day of school, how was it for him? Uh, it was a it was a struggle. We. Um, we started off the day uh, trying to make it as normal as possible by you know, getting him dressed and he put his backpack on and we took those first day of school pictures. Um, but then he, he wanted to walk to school. So we had to remind him that we were doing this on a computer. And the first class is the morning meeting and that went well. Mm -hmm. um, however, there was a break right after that meeting and he uh, went and started playing with his other toys. And then for the next session, it was uh, a struggle to get him back to the computer because he thought he was done for the day. And so we've already had some uh, cheers uh, shed this week uh, over, over the school. Wyatt has a individualized education program, also known as IEP, correct? Yes, he does. 
based on his IEP, is it adaptable for at home online setting? Or we're all trying to do the best we can. In fact, we have a meeting this afternoon with the school to review the IEP and see what can be done virtually uh, the best. Um, you know, outside the academics, he also has therapies he gets in school. So doing occupational therapy and speech therapy, um, it's not optimal, but it can work over video as long as he's there and engaged, um, it will be helpful. Uh, but we want as much of that as possible. And um, prior to having this meeting, it's been a little chaotic in trying to get the schedule down, mm -hmm. switching in between classes. Um, some classes, uh, we just don't have the support that we would need that you would have in person. Mr. Hardo, what's your response to someone who says, Wyatt is among millions of kids, of students, who are unfortunately because of this pandemic, they are their learning experience is hindered, but safety has to come first. Yeah, well, we definitely understand that. I would, I would make a couple points. One is that our kids with special needs are going to fall behind more than other kids. Uh, it's just something that's part of having a, a child with special needs. Even over a summer break, we have these concerns and we use extra services when we can. Uh, but we do want things to be safe. We're not saying no one should be safe. Uh, we we just want that choice to try to have that option and we want we don't want to force it on anybody and we don't want to force it on teachers either um, and at, for children like ours we have to balance that uh, loss of education versus safety and for us why it is generally healthy uh, we feel that going into a small group would be something that would be beneficial to him now, Mr. Hardo, what's your response to someone who says, Wyatt, you said, is generally healthy, but there are also other students who may be compromised or the educator who may be compromised, and also for the safety, not just for Wyatt, but for even a small setting. Can you understand people having that concern? And, and Yeah, we, we definitely yeah. have that concern. Again, we don't want to force people to go into school. Mm -hmm. uh, if you do have... A a compromised situation, you should stay at home, whether you're a, a student or a teacher. And you have to make that individual choice uh, uh, to balance those things out for your family. When you started this petition, were you surprised now that you're up to 3,000 signatures? Uh, I am. You know, I started it kind of just out of general frustration. Um, you know, one of the options in certain parent surveys and so forth was, you know, having that choice. Um, and it seemed like something that maybe was possible. Uh, but when they announced for our district that they were going virtual uh, only, it was, you know, I was frustrated and felt a little powerless. And, you know, I see these petitions pop up on social media and I've, I've never done one before. <laughs> and so I had seen one a couple of days earlier and then there's this announcement of going virtual only. And I remember that over the summer that another state had opened up the schools for special ed kids. So I kind of just put two and two together and, and, and did it, you know, uh, with um, some input from some other parents and really didn't think um, it would be more than say a couple hundred signatures. Mm -hmm. It was just a way for me to vent. But obviously this was a feeling that was felt by many. Mr. Hunter, how would you propose if you had some input? 
What suggestions do you have for us to try to come back and just give instruction, in-class instruction, to students with special needs? What suggestions do you have? Do you have any? Yes, I do. Um, the idea I have is I call it the ESY model, and uh, ESY stands for extended school year, and it's something that for children that do have IEPs, it's an opportunity where they do re receive extra services over the summer if they would like. And so um, there's a model of, of doing things to help kids not regress where they, they don't even open up all the schools. They might open up, say, one in 10 schools and use it as a hub for children that come in. And so if you think about the special needs community as a smaller community, and then only a certain percentage of those would be comfortable to send their children in, it seems like you could have some small classroom situations. So you're talking maybe less than 10 students, maybe less than five? Yeah, I think if um, you'd have a classroom kind of um, in this pod kind of situation where maybe five to 10 students um, with, you know, either in similar grades or with similar uh, disabilities that could work, you know, in, in a safe setting with, you know, a, a classroom that's clean and a, uh, a teacher that's wearing a mask and, and kids that are able to wear the mask could do that and, you know, space the, the desk and so forth apart. Um, uh, we think it's possible. Mm -hmm. With this petition, you're going to submit it to Governor Kemp or to the state education department? Well, it's one of these online petitions and I have uh, reached out to the governor's office and they are, you know, aware that it's there, uh, at least the office, maybe not the governor himself. And um, they've not only heard, you know, from me, but lots of parents. And, you know, they, they, there's only so much they can do, but mm -hmm. at the same time, they've actually encouraged me to keep it going because it helps bring light to the issue and that, that people will keep attended to it. What's the feedback been from other folks who maybe didn't agree with that? What have you been hearing? Um, I have heard from people that say, no, we don't want anything open or, or even that virtual work for them. And my answer is really, we just would like the choice. And if something's working for you, we certainly don't want to take that away. Mm -hmm. um, but kind of a one fits all approach, you know, um, doesn't work for everybody, and especially some of our special needs kids. When you all explain to Wyatt that Listen, buddy, you can't can't go to school right now because of this virus. And what did you all explain to him? He, yeah, he, um, he he understands to a certain degree. In fact, he will go around. At first, he was going around saying school closed, school closed. Mm -hmm. And um, and as I mentioned, he does like going to school. So he um, it's a struggle for him. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's very it can be very hit or miss. You know, if there's a very interactive session on the computer that's engaging him, you know, you can get a good 30 minutes out of him. Um, transitions are hard. Transitioning from a break back to the, the screen. Mm -hmm. um, of course, his parents were worried about any regression, but even just the engagement is helpful. Um, to not, not only what education he will be getting, but, you know, just, just the uh, aspect that we've been on this break for so long uh, not only is school closed, but other activities have been closed. Um, 
you know, he was doing Special Olympics that had shut down. Uh, the museums are shut down and so forth. So there's been a lot of pent up time and it's affecting his behavior as well. Hmm. Mr. Hardo, for Wyatt and your wishes for him and his academic achievement, are you have a concern that that's going to diminish with just the virtual instruction? Yes. Um, you know, there's a reason why uh, our kids have IEPs is to get that specialized instruction. And, and we do realize that, you know, teachers are putting their best foot forward, but it's, it's just the nature of the situation. You know, he's not a virtual learner or a digital learner. Being in person, having that multi-sensory aspect to it, mm-hmm. um, you lose a lot of that. And, and so we are concerned. And just like over the summer, a break from a pandemic is a concern as well. During the break, were y'all able to provide anything for him? Was there anything for Wyatt to continue on so that maybe the transition back to online, if that was going to happen, that it would be a little bit easier for him? We have continued um, some of our private therapies virtually. And, um, you know, some of the same struggles as with school, but, you know, those are half-hour sessions and not an all-day, you know, four- to six-hour type of of situation so it's can be a little bit easier to to convince them to for that but there's a lot of prodding a lot of um bribing <laughs> to to do that and we are now starting to do some in-person therapy as well um and again everything's very um sequenced in terms of uh letting us in and out of the building cleaning uh rails on handrails as we go in and out mm-hmm. um plexiglass divider as we as we might work with a therapist so we've we've done what we can and um uh, trying to keep things as regular as we as we would normally do uh because that that structure helps mr harder what district is wyatt a student in well we are in the city schools of the cater district and he goes to the fifth uh, avenue upper elementary school he's in fourth grade have you heard anything from the educators, superintendent, anybody about your concerns? Are you optimistic that maybe in January when the kids go back after the fall semester that perhaps maybe things will be different by then? Right. And, and in the presentation from the school, they did show, uh, you know, their decision-making process and some of the factors they use. And, and cases was definitely one of those large factors as well as their own preparedness. And... Um, you know, I did let the board know uh, that I was concerned, and some board members um, are concerned as well, and they want our kids to be back in school as soon as possible. Um, but as you mentioned, there's the reality of the situation. Mm-hmm. Todd Hartle formed a petition calling on Governor Kemp to resume in-person class instruction for students with disabilities. If, I, if you were asking about solutions, and if I might add one more thing, is that, um, you know, just recently with the CARES Act, there's some discretionary funds for governors to spend. And so if we are going to be at home, uh, maybe some micro grants to parents to use for tutoring and technology and, and so forth. Um, since we are at home, that would, you know, that help, help us smooth the transition a little bit. Mr. Hardwell, thank you so much for taking the time. I appreciate it. Best of luck to Wyatt. He's going into fourth grade? He's in the fourth grade, yes. Best of luck to him and you. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you for the time. 
That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Canavy. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.